You're listening to My TV Years from TV Choice. Please welcome your host, it's me, Mel Gedroich. It was me all the time, thank you. We just couldn't afford to get an actor to do that bit. Thank you for the warm welcome and thank you for downloading this episode of the podcast. I'm very excited for this episode because my guest is an award-winning actor and comedian who starred in productions across the British TV spectrum from seminal comedies, Goodness Gracious Me and The Kumars at number 42, in which he starred alongside his wife, the multi-talented Mira Sayal, as well as, he can do everything, this guy, honestly, popular dramas, Unforgotten and The Indian Doctor. It is, of course, the one... The only, the terribly, terribly talented and lovely Sanjeev Baskar. Sanjeev, Sanj, if I may. Uh, you may. It's really, really lovely to have you on the old podcast. Do you like a podcast? I do like a podcast. I think podcasts are the new... Radio shows? What Watching. <laughs> the new it's watching? Kind of, I mean, it's... Yeah, I think they're great. I mean, you know... What, 10 years ago they didn't exist? And now they're, you know, you can sort of dive into all sorts of areas yeah. of interest. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. I love podcasts. And also, because like radio, you can be doing other stuff, oh. you know, while you're... So what of, are you doing? Are you doing your crocheting or are you doing... I'm imagining some kind of craft going on there, Sanj. Well, I'm, I'm keeping my hands where you can't see them just to retain the mystery. <laughs> I could be doing anything that one could do with hidden hands, <laughs> including crochet. Mainly crochet. I'm giving you... That's, now that sounds like a euphemism. <laughs> it really does. You, it really you crochet. does. <laughs> I'm giving you my 100% commitment. I'm not doing anything else. I'm focusing on you specifically and your TV watching habits, Sanjeev. I want to take... Indeed. I want to take you back. Oh, there we go. I don't know if that's that's my phone. <laughs> That's <laughs> that's my phone, but it sort of works, doesn't it? It sort of it works. <laughs> now, the first TV show that you remember watching, what was it? I think it was The Saint. Oh, now are we talking uh, Roger Moore? We are talking Roger Moore okay. um, because uh, the Ian Ogilvy was the return of The Saint. Yeah. Um, to be pedantic about these things, but uh, yeah, The Saint I think is the is the first one I remember watching. We had a little black and white telly in... Uh, we had one room in the house. I was brought up in a in a flat above a laundrette and we had no central heating and no double glazing. And particularly in the winter, we all sort of decamped to one room. It was like a really crappy festival <laughs> uh, where we all kind of just lived in one room. And the rest of the house was freezing and it was it was terrified the thought of going to the the loo was terrifying because the, the whole house was freezing and the loo and the bathroom were the coldest houses oh. so we sort of just all camped it was me my sister who was four years younger than me and my mum and dad and we had a, a sofa bed that we just all slept on oh. and so I remember the telly being incredibly active and and probably uh, the only the only source of heat as well as watching it was that added bonus yeah we had I think we had one heater in the room oh. plus the telly so yeah I think I think it was the same and I think that also at that time tv channels I mean there were three at that point I think uh when I was a kid were were incredibly structured so you know there would be a limited amount of daytime programming and then there'd be kind of kids programming between about I don't know four and 
5.30, 5.45, just before the news. And then there'd be kind of family programs up until nine o'clock. And then that's where the famous watershed came in. And the stuff after nine o'clock, we weren't really allowed to watch. So the saint kind of fell in a lot of that telewatching that happened in the early evening. Lovely. That, the Avengers and uh, Dad's Army and, you know, various sitcoms and stuff. But um, the saint of all of those is the one that, you know, I remember all of us watching together. was music from ITC's The Saint, composed by Edwin Astley, performed by Edwin Astley and his orchestra. Any relation to Rick? I don't know. Now, you mentioned at the start you wanted to sort of differentiate between The Saint and the return of The Saint. Indeed. Is this because, you know, to be a proper purist saint viewer, you can't have anything to do with The Return of The Saint and Ian Ogilvie? Is he a bit below par? No, I, do you know what? He isn't. He isn't. But it was just that... There was something about the time, the style of the 60s, the fashion of the 60s, and just how charismatic Roger Moore was that really made that programme. I kind of believed he was this sort of do-gooder, musketeer, lone musketeer, yeah. going out to help people, a Robin Hoody kind of figure that all seemed to work. And I think as well in the in the uh, original series, I mean, it was all shot at, at Elstree, uh, just north of London in Hertfordshire. But he was globetrotting, and as Roger Moore himself said, that basically they just stuck a palm tree in front of the in front of the camera, uh, captioned it "Nice," and uh, and he walked out onto um, you know the high street, so, uh, and so good. Uh, so good, and away you went. But there was that sense of exotica that came from it. You know, people didn't travel very much, yeah. and here was this globetrotting. You know, he wasn't really a sleuth, so I suppose he was like a Sherlock Holmesy kind of private detective type thing. But it was funny and it was adventurous and it was exotic. And I think by the time we got to uh, The Return of the Saint, I think that it felt in many ways more conscious due to its predecessor. Yeah. And they probably did have the money to go to Nice, but it didn't somehow seem as exotic as just the high street with a palm tree in front of it. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to put this out there Sanj and I know there have been many a sketch over the years that the the only acting that Roger Moore does is with his eyebrows all that kind of stuff. I'm going to say he's a good actor. I really like Roger Moore as an actor. Am I insane saying that or do you no. agree? No, you're 100% right. Thank you. You're 100% right. And the main reason is that um it's really difficult uh to look that easy to make it look that easy mm. i mean you you cannot be a bad actor and make it look that easy mm. and he had a kind of calm relaxedness about him i love Roger that Hall. um yeah i mean he was incredibly charismatic mm. and so i think you know the range of stuff that he ended up doing perhaps was a narrower band but there are kind of films particularly here and there the man who haunted himself particularly as one where it's just a really good acting performance. But in the same way that Cary Grant on screen kind of made it look easy. Effortless. You know, and you kind of go, yeah, he must have been really, really good. Mm. Because, you, I mean, bad actors on screen really stand out. Mm. They they make it look really, really, really hard. Mm. <laughs> and um, And he didn't. And so, yeah, I've always maintained that I think 
Roger Moore was an excellent actor. I'm so glad you say that, Sam, because I am I am with you. He's my favourite Bond. Well, I'm a huge Bond fan. Oh, are you? So are you? Of, yeah, massive. And, massive. And is Moore your favourite? Well, he was he was the one that I went to the cinema to see. Mm. And, um, and I, you know, then was fortunate enough, bizarrely, to become friends with him. And oh. uh, I did say to him once, um, I said, Roger, did I ever tell you that Live and Let Die was the first Bond film I, I went to see at the cinema? And he said, uh, no. And I said, well, it was, I said it was the days of continuous programming. So, you know, if you just sat there, they just started the film again after about half an hour. And I said, so I kind of watched it. I really loved it. And then I thought I'd watch, you know, just the opening and I'll watch it up to the boat chase and I'll watch it up to the alligators or whatever. And I said, Roger, I ended up watching the whole film twice. I sat there and watched it twice. And he left it a second before he said, you owe me £4.50. What a good man. He's just a joy. I mean, I, I've heard from various people that he was an absolute quality egg and it's very good to have that corroborated. And I love the fact that he lived... Am I right in saying he was he was a neighbour of David Bowie in Switzerland? They had sort of neighbouring chalets in Switzerland, which yeah, I... So I've heard, yeah. I never, I never spoke to him about um, Bowie, but uh, yeah, I did, uh, I did hear that. So good. Who knew cheese-flavoured chocolate could taste so good? Oh, that's grim. Now, you mentioned that you all used to watch together around the titchy, tiny uh, little black and white TV, as we were doing at mm. the same time outside Leatherhead. So you watched with your mum and dad. That's all good. But were, were there certain programmes that they watched that you really didn't like? I mean, generally, I, I was a, you know, I was kind of a TV addict. So I kind of found everything on TV fascinating. It was because in a way, I mean, given that, you know, we were an Indian family uh, living in a very cold room in a cold flat above a laundrette in Hounslow under the flight path to Heathrow. Uh, almost everything that I saw on TV was escapism. It was a different world. All of it was a different world. So I kind of loved all of it. And in fact, my punishment from my mum because she couldn't turf me out of the room because it would, I would have just got hypothermia. But um, my punishment was she would make me turn my back to the TV. That was my punishment oh, in the room. that's harsh. And um, this is when I was five, five years old, six years old. Um, but I cunningly, I think particularly cunningly for that age, managed to position myself where there was some reflective surface either a little mirror or a photograph that had, you know, glass glass in it or a bit of metal, spoon, shiny metal or something, <laughs> spoon. Uh, anything would have done so I could carry on watching. But the, my dad was kind of obsessed with the sort of current affairs programmes. Right. So Panorama and World in Action and, you know, all of which now I think are great and were great. But at the time, as a five-year-old, that was just kind of like, turn it off. It was awful. And on, on the weekends, it was Weekend World. Brian Walden. That used to be on. Yeah, my dad. Brian Walden. My dad. Before Brian Walden, it was Peter J. Peter J. Um, yes. Yeah, who then later, I think, became ambassador. an ambassador. Yeah, he was in Washington, wasn't he? That's right. And so, you know, those are the programmes that just felt like dirge to me because they weren't escapism. They were about the real world yeah. all the time, which kind of felt a bit naff. <laughs> Walden was particularly memorable. He had a great voice, didn't he? Yeah, he had a... Uh, uh, button, 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 he used to say, yeah, didn't he? he? Yeah, he rolled his arse. 
Yes. All the time, because then we had uh, Walden's World that came after... Uh, I mean, I was just trying to find as many words with an R in it to give him. Um, but he was brilliant. I mean, you know, yeah. you know, when I think back to it and when I got older and watched bits of it, he was a fantastic journalist and presenter. Yeah, he was. Brian. But at Brian the time... Walden. Brian. Brian Walden. That's all from Weekend World for today. This is also uh, the last programme in the current series. And it's my last uh, appearance as presenter of Weekend World. After nine years uh, in the job, I'm retiring. That was the wonderful Brian Walden hosting Weekend World 1986 by LWT for ITV. So um, I have a very similar memory, actually. I was not allowed to watch Dallas um, when, mm. when it came on because my mum was worried that it was, you know, teaching me the wrong kind of morals. <laughs> but there was there was a patio door, very similar to you. There was a patio door that if you angled it correctly, I could watch the reflection of Dallas but not be seen by my mum and dad. I watched many, many episodes of Dallas reflected in the patio door. Brilliant. It's hilarious. It's hilarious. Brilliant. I get it. Yeah. Is there a show that you just would not miss? We obviously know that you watch The Saint religiously, but is there another Mm. show that you wouldn't miss as a child? The more escapist it was, I think the more I was drawn to it. So, but I think actually it's probably Star Trek. Mm. Star Trek was the one program that I really looked forward to and, and still do. I still love Star Trek. I liked all the science fiction shows, actually. Uh, you know, the more kind of uh, otherworldly they were, the better. And the, uh, Star Trek was literally otherworldly. I mean, they were in other worlds. But also, it was a fantastically utopian idea of the world. I didn't realise that at the time, but I recognised the fact that you had a mix of cultures in there. That, you know, Uhura was black and there weren't many black characters on TV. That was great. And Chekhov was obviously supposed to be Russian. Uh, Sulu was kind of vaguely from the east somewhere, not not exactly where he came from. And then you had Spock, who just came from another planet. But here were all these people working together. And I really loved it. I loved the fact that there was the notion of what the world could be. And also it was set at a time in the future when things like money and racism didn't exist. You know, and that was kind of interesting. Now I look back on it, patently sexism did exist because all the ladies had to wear short skirts and Kirk inevitably, you know, landed on a planet where there would be either a woman or a sexy female alien of some kind. Painted green. And Paint, I love that one. Painted, there was the painted I green one, her. yeah. I love her. And, uh, and the fact that, you know, they would always land and there would always be a moment where um, Kirk would say something like, but what about love? <laughs> And sexy alien would go, what is love? <laughs> and then, of course, Kirk would have to show her. <laughs> so, yeah, they hadn't quite worked on that bit yet. I care for him. But you can't really love him. You haven't the slightest knowledge of love. The total union of two people. You are the companion. He is the man. You are two different things. You can't join. You can't love. You may keep him here forever, but you will always be separate. Apart from him. 
That was William Shatner as Captain Kirk in Star Trek 1967, the Metamorphosis episode for NBC. I mean, I, I'm totally with you. I was a huge, I was a huge Star Trek fan. I have to say, I haven't followed it so much of recent years, but one day I will. I will. I'll, I'll kind of catch up. But well, did you watch the Next Generation? Uh, Patrick Stewart and that crowd. Is that with the the guy with the um, the mirrored yeah. strip hairband yeah, on his eyes? That's right, Geordie. Geordie LaForge. Geordie LaForge. I, yeah, I, Geordie LaForge. I, I did... Yeah. I, Why I? Why I? <laughs> I did watch... I, no, I was about to lie and say I did. I didn't really, to be honest. Oh, well, that was close. But I loved, I loved the friendship with um, Spock and Kirk. It was, I, was, I was very touched. They seemed to be genuinely really, really good friends. But also, I think maybe now, now you've mentioned it, I think as a young man, as a young male... I think that it kind of explored male friendships because that triumvirate of Spock, Bones yeah. and Kirk, mm. you know, where, you know, Bones was utterly emotional. Um, <laughs> They're people, Jim. And, uh, you know, Kirk was kind of in between because he was in charge and Spock was kind of like almost totally logical. It was a fantastic kind of setup in mm. terms of how people, but uh, for me, blokes relate to each other it's clever and um i hadn't really thought about that before but yeah that's another element mm. which is the show sanjeev Bhaskar, that you would absolutely without fail sit down to watch together as a family we've talked about the saint i'm assuming that you all watch the saint are there any others yeah we kind of um i mean in terms of sitcoms faulty towers mm. definitely mm-hmm. uh and uh, it ain't half hot, Mum. And probably, having said that, mind your language as well. Yeah. But I think with both of those, I think for my parents, it was the closest they saw to any kind of representation of who they were. So even though, you know, in mind your language, they were, you know, to a certain extent, being mocked, it was still kind of a connection. Interesting. And with uh, it ain't half hot, Mum. Actually, you know, Michael Bates played the title character in it. And he had, you know, blacked up to play it. What did they make of that? What What did you all make of that? No, do you know what? It was, the fact was that he was very, very good. He could speak the language. He was fluent in Urdu, I think it was. And he'd, because he'd spent so much time in India, he'd picked up the language, he'd learnt the language. And actually, I've always defended Mum because, in effect, Randy, who was the title character, was sort of like, Sergeant Bilko mm. beforehand. In fact, he was the smart one. He was the kind of, you know, the fixer. He was the one who could get away with it all. That was Michael Bates as Ranji Ram in It Ain't Off Hot Mum 1974, the My Lovely Boy episode for BBC. And if anything, I think that the Perry and Crofts stuff, Dad's Army and Are You Being Served, the main kind of focus for their comedy tended to be class. So actually, it ain't half up, Mum, the, the, the Colonel and the Major Dashwood. were the biggest idiots. So good. Yeah, they were the biggest idiots on the thing. And everything, you know, even within the concert party, you know, Lardy Dargana Graham I love Lardy had been to Oxford yes. or something. And so... You know, it was, it was very much about class mm. and actually this one kind of, you know, Indian, so-called Indian character 
was actually the smart one. So I don't, I never felt, or we never felt, that Indians were being mocked by that. That's really interesting, actually. Because you have two other, you know, genuine sort of, you know, Asian actors in it. Uh, Dino Shafiq, who played the... Yes, the um, Chawala. Chaiwala. Yes, yeah. Um, I loved him. The, he was great. Yeah. And, and the Punkawala. Punk yes, marvellous. And the, and the Punkawala, where I think it was a really kind of uh, progressive character, was that all of his dialogue was in Hindi or Urdu, with only the punchline being in English. And wasn't subtitled. It was not explained. He just did it. I forgot that. I totally forgot that. So I've always, always defended it. It's kind of, um, you know, other programmes from that era are more difficult to defend. Yeah. Jamila? What is this? Gaja. <laughs> yes, I'm sure you're right, but what is it in English? Have you never heard of a carrot? Carrot? Yes, carrot. Oh, ha! Huh? Horace? And carrot. <laughs> that was Barry Evans as Jeremy Brown, Zara Nutley as Miss Courtney, and Jamila Massey as Jamila Ranja in Mind Your Language, 1978, the All Through the Night episode for ITV. I don't think it was All Through the Night, it was just called that. I'll tell you what the marker was, Mel. It was that, you know, when shows like that were on, or Love Thy Neighbour, or even Till Death Us Do Part, the litmus test for me as a kid was what did I get called in the playground the next day? Oh, interesting. And that was the kind of marker for me. Right. And in terms of It Ain't Half Hot Mum, the catchphrase that was most repeated and not at me was shut up. Shut up, yes. Shut up! Yeah. Um, whereas with some of the, those other shows, I got the kind of, you know, the, the kind of insulting mm. word of the day uh, the next day. So that, that was my personal litmus test for it. That's really interesting, actually. Where have you been? The rest of the draft arrived yesterday. You are 24 hours late. Well, you see... Shut up! <laughs> now, Mr. Lardy Dargunner Graham, what did you think you was doing sitting down by there drinking tea? Why wasn't you whitening them stones? I'm terribly sorry, Sergeant. Shut up! Ah. Oh. The inimitable Windsor Davis there as Tudor Bryn shut up Williams in It Ain't Half Hot Mum 1974, the Meet the Gang episode for BBC. I have to say full props to Windsor Davis. What a performance. I mean, a really, great. truly great comedy performance that as well as well as all the others. But there's something specifically brilliant about Sergeant Major Shut Up. The eyes, it's like there's very funny eyes. Yeah, it's, the, it's you know, it's that whole kind of, you know, the lid on the pressure cooker thing. Yeah. You know, he constantly, yes. the, the lid was on the pressure cooker and he pitched that performance <laughs> consistently throughout. You know, he was the man who was lost. You know, yes, he was, you know, yes. he thought his bosses were idiots, but he couldn't impact their decisions. He was kind of, he wanted to be, you know, a fighting man and he was put in front, you know, put in charge of this concert yes, party. Yes, He was a man who was stuck. <laughs> I took my dad to see the stage version of It Ain't Our Pop Mum. That was oh, wow. that was on at the I think it was at the the Apollo Theatre in Oxford. It was sparsely attended, Sanj. It was a few oh, was it? it was a few years after its heyday, but it was my dad's favourite programme. I mean he was a pole, my dad, but he loved anything to do with the war, you know, essentially dad's mm. army and stuff. But 
it was it was great to see them all on stage and meet them. We we waited at the stage door to get their autographs afterwards. It was it yeah. Oh wow! <laughs> it was. Were they the first famous people that you met? Pro- probably yes. Actually, waited for John Enman outside Panto to get his autograph. Uh, that was very exciting. And once met Robert Hardy and also Michael Fish. Uh, just oh, wow. in, well, in street, go. yeah. But anyway, who was the first famous person that you met? Uh, <laughs> do you remember? I do, and it's a slightly embarrassing story, but uh, okay. Go on. Okay, I'll tell you. Um, so um, when I was at uh, university, one of my all-time acting heroes uh, is Jack Lemmon. <sighs> and because I thought Jack Lemmon could do absolutely everything. I thought he was fantastic. So I went to see him on stage twice, but the first time I saw him, I went with my then girlfriend and uh, in London tickets, West End tickets just seemed exorbitant to us. And so we, we thought we'd buy a drink and share it uh, at the interval. And as we were kind of like sharing our drink, I looked over and saw Howard Keel. Remember Howard uh, Keel? Of course, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Okay. Seven Dallas. Brides, seven Brothers. He was blooming. Indeed, he was, Dallas. Yes. He was replacement... Um, to, to Jock, you know. wasn't he? He was the boyfriend. Yeah, he was Miss Ellie's boyfriend. Yeah. Uh, he was also in uh, Kiss Me Kate. Yes, he yes, he well. was. Petruccio, absolutely. Um, so he was standing there. He was, he was enormous. He was about six foot five. <laughs> and being of that generation, he and the, the gentleman he was with, who may have been equally famous, but I didn't recognise him, had both gone out to the theatre and they're dressed up in their dicky bows and their ties because we're going to the theatre. And I said to my girlfriend, I said, oh, my goodness, that's Howard Keel. I've got, I've, got I've, got I've got to talk to him. I've got to say something. I've got to say something to Howard Keel. I can't let this moment pass. So I kind of strode up and um, said, I'm, I'm terribly sorry uh, to interrupt. And I proffered my hand and I said, Mr Keel, I'm such a fan of your work from the musicals and... Um, Day of the Triffids, yeah. uh, he was in as well. And I said, it's so so lovely to see you and uh, I yeah, hope you enjoy the show and have a lovely evening. And he just kind of mumbled, uh, hey, thank you. And and I felt invincible. You know, I kind of walked, I, I've just spoken to someone famous. This is, I had spoken to Howard Bloody Keel. And with that surge of kind of faux confidence, we sat down, we were in the circle and I noticed that Howard Keel was about four rows in front of me. And to my... Oh, flip it, I'm feeling hot. Oh, no. Um, oh, no. To my utter, utter shock, in that weird, weird sort of, you know, split-screen way where you're, you're doing the thing and you're watching yourself oh, doing it. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you're watching yourself yeah. going, what are you doing? I found myself oh. shouting, Howard! Hey, Howard! How? He, and he looked round. I said, do you want a vanilla tub? I'm going to get a vanilla tub. Do you want a vanilla tub? And I was thinking, what are you doing? And the, the four rows, three rows between us were just, you know, Wimbledon-like, just looking between us. And my last view of him was him staring at me as the lights went down for the beginning of the second half. And throughout the second half, all I could think of was trying to guess where the play was going to end so we could just leave while it was still dark and get out. I can imagine he might have given you a slightly scary stare, actually, Howard Keel. Maybe that's why I was also trying to get out before the play ended. I bet he had real sort of hardcore army training, Howard Keel, or something like that. He was that that sort of generation, wasn't he? Oh, my God. 
I mean, he could probably kill you with dance <laughs> as well. Did you do it to impress the girlfriend, Sanj? Slightly. I, I have Possibly. no idea Who what. Knows? I think it was, I'd never really felt confidence before. And it was that surge of adrenaline <laughs> that made me feel like I could do anything. But honestly, Howard, do you want a vanilla tub? I, I still can't believe it. Maybe he didn't know what a vanilla tub was. Well, that makes it worse. It... <laughs> <laughs> he might have thought it was, you know, sharing a bath with him in some way, or I don't know. Listen, I that I applaud you. I absolutely applaud you. I tanked in front of Michael Fish, actually. Uh, it's too boring and long to go into now, but I absolutely tanked in front of Michael Fish. And my brother was watching and was, I've never seen anyone laugh so much in their entire life. <laughs> I want to talk to you about illicit viewing. Uh, is mm. there a show that you can remember, possibly as a teenager, that, you know, maybe you shouldn't have been watching, maybe, you know, the rentals were slightly keeping an eye out, thinking, like, like my parents with Dallas. Is there, is there one of yeah. those for you? Yeah, I mean, the first one that comes to mind is, is Monty Python. Oh. It was, they would repeat it, you know, be on telly quite late. And yeah. I think my parents watched a bit of it once and just kind of thought, no, this is just wrong. It's First of all, they didn't, they didn't understand what the same, hell was going on. Same with on. mine. Same with mine. Couldn't get it. Yeah. And occasionally, you know, there'd be the buxom lass or there'd be Terry Jones's bare bottom. And, you know, and that really once once you've got, you know, Terry Jones, you know, with his back to us, naked, playing the piano. I mean, where the hell is this show going to go? I mean, it can only be utterly sinful and you know bad influence so that was the one that if my parents had friends around then I would go and sneak a telly on and watch it or you know because I was too young to be left alone and the good thing about those little tvs because we had one exactly the same a tiny black and white tv was that they were portable I mean you could you know if your parents were in one area you could sort of move it to another to another zone I must say, I never really watched Monty Python. I, I listened to it on record. My brother had all the records. Mm-hmm. And I listened to it again and again and again and again and again and again. But never actually, I've never seen much Monty Python. I should probably catch up. They're quite good. They are quite good. Apparently, they're, they're quite yeah. influential. <laughs> Allegedly. Is there a TV moment that you remember as a kid? The best TV moment that's, that sticks out, sticks in your memory? Well... Yeah, uh, again, you know, I'll go with the first thing that came into my head and that captured everyone's imagination, which was Dallas. It was Who Shot JR. Mm. JR Ewing here. Hello. I mean, it was, it became such a phenomenon that, you know, we, I mean, uh, we did used to watch Dallas. That was one of the programs that the family used to kind of gather around to watch. And, you know, at the end of that particular season, J.R. Ewing, played by Larry Hagman, gets shot by a kind of unseen assailant. That was the cliffhanger. That was Larry Hagman as J.R. Ewing in Dallas, 1980, the A House Divided episode for CBS. And I remember it got to the stage that you know, the country was kind of interested. People were taking bets on it. There was I shot JR T-shirts that, that came out. And I remember when the, the next season was ready, I remember on the news that they filmed the kind of the, the videotapes being brought 
from America. Yes, yes I remember. You know, that they were wheeled off the plane and there yep. was extra security around it and everything. There's been few kind of, you know, TV moments I can think of that have captured the, you know, nation's attention in quite the same way. Other than live events, fine, you know, those are going to happen there and then. I suppose Diana's funeral was really huge, you know, in terms of everybody was aware of it. But in terms of, you know, drama or fictional programming, I can't think of anything bigger than who shot JR. Who, who did you think at the time had done it? Do you remember? I mean, I, I remember people were writing in. I think um, Larry Hagman did a, a thing where he kind of like, you know, basically gave out a prize for people who were guessing and there were <laughs> yes. incredibly outlandish kind of uh, suggestions. But yeah. uh, yeah, it was brilliant. Though. I caught some Dallas not long ago on some, you know, TV gold type channel and it looked do you, you remember how glamorous it seemed to us when we were that age? Yeah. You know, a, a, a party at South Fork was like the absolute, the the be-all and end-all of glamour. There was there was a scene with a barbecue. Oh, it was tawdry, Sanj. It was fair. It looked really sad. <laughs> there was some sort of outdoor shots of tables with gingham cloths on flapping sadly in a sort of stiff breeze. The food, the snacks were terrible. The, there was nothing cut nice coming off what do the they barbecue. Have? Do they have kind of like those old cheese footballs or pineapple on sticks? I mean, it was the cocktail sausages. Well, what, can you remember? You imagine a Texan barbecue would be the full on, you know, whole kind of racks and sides of meat coming off. Yeah. It was it was it was tawdry. It was kind of burgers. It was burgers and small chops. Oh, I not know. Even not no, nothing like that. Wow. And pe- and the clothes and the clothes. I'd always thought the clothes was just so Charlene Tilton's wardrobe, you know, to die for. But anyway, not not for a rewatch that one. Not for a rewatch. Mm. Um, if you were if you were bunking off school, so you've got a sick day uh, from from school. What would you be watching? Well, the, the, if it was a sick day, then you know, apart from you know, sort of very kind of preschool type stuff that used to be on. Around lunchtime, I think. You and me, you and me. Play away and stuff. Yeah. Like you and me. There was a whole host of strange and wonderful programs. There was, gosh, what was that program? There was a program with Jack Hargreaves. Oh, he was out and about in the country, he'd be in a boat, and then he'd be. Not Pebble, Mill, not Pebble Mill at One. No. It wasn't, but although Pebble Mill at One, I quite liked because you would get, you know, the odd famous person on there, you know, uh, particularly older, sort of get a golden era Hollywood people would end up on there yes for some reason and then then i'd be thinking when i got older i thought what did they make of birmingham that's, that's all i'd be thinking is if it was betty davis what did betty davis make of the accent did that sort of thing inspire you into into wanting to get into tv Sanj? did you watch pebble mill at one and think i'd I, i'd like to <laughs> i'd like to well, be marion foster i <laughs> i still do um ironically my first TV job was at Pebble Mill. So that was a little weird connection with that. Oh, wow. Um, I think all of it did, actually, Mel. I think, you know, from the saint onwards, I just thought part of it is escaping the world that you're in. And so it, in a world where I didn't necessarily feel, certainly my parents uh, were accepted uh, wholly uh, and where I was made to feel different, the fantasy world was somewhere... It was fantasy, so I'd fit into that, and mm. you could be somebody else, and you could explore different things, and so I, I think from the outset, I think it appealed to me. I think that um, 
I mean, I did say, going back to Roger Moore, I did say to Roger Moore once, I said, um, I think it was watching you as the saint that made me want to be an actor. Oh. And he said, of course, you thought if he can get a job, anyone can. Um, but it was, it was that, because also because he made it look fun. And, yeah. you know, and that was the other thing. Yeah. He didn't, you know, he wasn't a tortured soul on screen. There was always a twinkle, wasn't there? Always a twinkle. Yeah, I mean, to the end. Um, but, in, you know, in life as in on screen. So I think it all did. I don't think there was specific programmes. I think the... The whole concept collect- of it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Wonderful. Pour hommes, pour femmes, ou de toilettes. Oh mon Dieu, c'est très fort. What are you watching at the moment, Sanj? What is obsessing you? Well, I, th- I mean, we were, and I'd speak for Mira as well, we became very obsessive about Staged, which I thought was fantastic. With David Tennant and... Um, Michael Sheen. Michael Sheen. Um, Who, they I did it in was, lockdown, didn't they? Yeah, it was brilliant. And it, it just worked as a programme. I mean, it didn't... You know, the fact that it was in lockdown and they used that was almost by the by because it was about their relationship and uh, their comic relationship. I thought that was brilliant. And succession oh come on man the last episode along of season three i thought was shakespearean i thought it was just extraordinary Mm -hmm. in terms of writing and performing and ted lasso i I just think that you know doing comedy as sharp as the comedy is with as much heart is such a kind of difficult balance because you know if you comedy very often works against heart you know, in the, you know, you're trying to, you're being iconoclastic and you're forging conflicts to find the funny. But actually, uh, they managed to do both in in such a kind of warm, glorious way mm. that it was fantastic. I suppose with Succession as well, what's extraordinary about it is they are all pretty repellent, aren't they? But yet there's... Yeah. That you, I wouldn't say you get warmth from it, but... I don't know this. I, well, mind you, Wom, Womgams, I can't say his name, Matthew McFadgen is almost, there's, there is warmth yeah. in him, isn't there? Tom, he plays Tom, doesn't he? He does. And he's brilliant. And, and they're all brilliant. But you're right. I mean, you know, it's a fantastic, I mean, as a counterpoint, Succession and Ted Lasso is that you could, Ted Lasso, you've got, you know, a lot of likable characters mm. and so you know the challenge to find the comedy in that is is quite hard mm. um but in succession they're all unlikable characters they, to varying degrees grim. absolutely you know grim. even I, I think matthew mcfadden is brilliant in it best thing he's uh, ever but done. you have to kind of he's go amazing. he's the nicest of <laughs> this rum cove i mean it's yeah and that's brilliant to be able to kind of populate a series with almost universally dislikable characters, yeah, and for you to want to know what happens mm. is is fantastic. It's you know Nesta Vipers thing, but also you know Vipers who have you know carry different kinds of poison. I, yeah, very yes, a very good point. I sort of want there to be some redemption there, though. I'm worried after the three seasons that it's just all too bleak and all too grim. I want, I I do, I need a I need a chink of light there. Somewhere. 
It is. I love it. It's brilliant. But I just hope. I don't know. I, it'll be interesting to see where it goes in in season four. Yeah. No, I'm I'm very keen to see where they take it because I I think it's exactly that. You know, it's it's like you know, it's like the Bond franchise. It's kind of how the heck are you going to do the next one? I, I mean, think it's a similar thing with Succession. Yeah. Favorite theme tune, Sanjeev. I'm thinking of the succession music now booming in That's my ears and how it? extraordinary and how copied it is now. Yeah. You watch sort of, I was watching some documentary on Netflix the other night and it was, it was just succession with a couple of the, the notes changed. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's become that really sort of iconic music, hasn't it? Yeah, it's brilliant. I kind of downloaded the soundtracks because I just thought the music throughout was yeah. brilliant. And I like it um, when you hear a version of the main, you know, theme tune. You well, get... that's the thing, isn't it? It's that whole thing about great theme tune is that you can do the kind of the action version and the sad version and kind of that. I mean, that's what makes, I think, Bond themes so good is they take whatever that title song is, you know, whether it was, you know, Billie Eilish or whether it was Duran Duran or Paul McCartney. And they were able, I mean, it was John Barry earlier on or David Arnold later on, that they were able to kind of fashion the kind of yeah. the contemplative version yeah you know that's it's, quite clever it's you know. really clever it's really clever they did it with eastenders do you remember um anyone can fall in oh, love yes. they occasionally play a sort of slightly mournful uh lovey-dovey version of it just depresses me yeah yeah but fave theme tunes through tv fave theme tunes uh, i think if there are two that i still listen to actually are thunderbirds i think thunderbirds <gasps> march is brilliant. Five, four, three, two, one. You know, it's, it's a bunch of puppets yeah. on telly, but it was cinematic yes. in terms of the music. And I think the, the music did a lot to kind of elevate that from, well, they're just a bunch of puppets yeah. to kind of, you know, being involved and engaged in their adventures. That was the Thunderbirds March, performed by the Barry Gray Orchestra and composed by Barry Gray. The other one I think is brilliant is Mission Impossible. I mean, any time I see, you know, someone struggling with a shopping trolley or the chains come off their bike or whatever, the Mission Impossible <laughs> theme goes through my head. It's great. It's that similar thing, isn't it? When something slightly spooky occurs, you, you, everyone always does a ning, 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 which was the... Um... That's Farman Sam, isn't it? <laughs> That's that's actually a brilliant theme tune. Fireman Sammy, da da da. He's always on the da na, na na. Did it? I love that. That's a good. That's yeah, a cracking good. tune. Um, yeah. Oh, Sanjeev, listen. It's been so lovely to have you on the pod uh, with us. Thank you very very much for sharing those memories. Thank you. Can I just ask one tiny question? Mm. So you lived above the laundrette, yeah, and underneath. The planes. Yes. What was louder, the the noise coming up from the machines, or from above from the planes? Well, the interesting thing is that you get used to both. Oh, uh, actually, the, the the planes you got used to in that you know the machines were kind of like a, a constant hum. Yeah. So that was kind of fine. Um, the planes we ended up having to use as punctuation in a sentence <laughs> because you'd have to stop for the so you'd kind of go. Auntie Bimler's got an enormous <laughs> boil at the moment. Uh, she's thinking of sticking a letter to the doctor uh, to see if he can just 
gutted off. It was so we got used to that just being punctuation. <laughs> thank you so so much for chatting. It's always a total joy, and thank you very very much for joining us. No, total pleasure. Thank you. Sanjeev Bhaskar there. What a gentleman. What a guy. What a guest. I'm Mel Gedroich. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the podcast. Make sure to like, follow, subscribe and leave a nice comment wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you never miss an episode. I'll see you again for the next episode of My TV Years from TV Choice. <laughs>